0: The future has come to pass.
1: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture, the podcast where we delve deep into the Left Behind series, so you don't have to. I am your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell along here with...
2: Your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Great to be here.
1: So we are on to the second part of book one of the Left Behind series. So um, before we kind of dive in, how did you feel about
2: uh, about this second portion, this second third of the book. Well, this portion gets like, this is when stuff really starts ramping up. Like, this is when uh, the action just takes a turn and it gets wild in more ways than one.
1: Yeah, we get a little bit of the Tom Clancy thriller stuff that was teased at the end of last episode. And just to catch everybody up, if you haven't listened to... The episode one go back and take a listen but we ended with friendly neighborhood conspiracy theorist Dirk Burton Williams's good good buddy dead in his apartment
2: it was ruled a suicide which uh, I'm sure that's gonna check out oh yeah totally there's
1: there's nothing nefarious about that at all and I think that's gonna be a theme as we go throughout the uh, recording today is uh, nothing weird and nefarious about that at all
2: yeah, nothing nothing to see here in this uh in this part.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, before we get back to the story with Buck and uh, and the late Dirk, we jump in with another Rayford bit. From one of the first times, we start to really see some dialogue between Ray and Chloe, which is going to be pretty heavily featured in this portion of the book. So we begin with Ray talking to Chloe, and she actually starts out with, you know, in California, they're actually buying into the whole space alien thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, we, we start out really good with uh, just some good dialogue uh, between... Um Chloe and Rayford some some great liberal bashing some great west coast bashing because as we
1: learned from last week yeah
2: it just seems that if some alien uh, life force was capable of doing this they'd also be capable of communicating um to us wouldn't they want to take over now or demand ransom or get us to do something for them
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I kind of love how any theory whatsoever that isn't the one that the target audience is automatically going to buy into is taken as absolute lunacy Mm-hmm. they take the moment to specifically mention that it's people on the west coast which we talked a little bit about last week is that everyone on the west the west coast are a bunch of morons who believe in crackpot stuff
2: yeah yeah that's uh i noticed that was a i have a a, a few specific notes about that in uh in this section um where th- like that kind of uh like jab comes up a, a good bit
1: yeah i gotta say i actually really like chloe as a character and i I from what you and I have said off mic, I think you do too. Yeah. That she actually brings up a lot of really valid points. They take a minute to have Ray's perspective on her and how he raised her and how close she is to him. And, you know, now he sort of blames himself for raising her in the way that he did um, because she is now left behind like he is. But we get some really interesting lines um, of Ray's sort of self-reflection specifically I only called myself a Christian because I was raised that way and wasn't Jewish
2: yeah I noticed uh, that line as well like I have that one highlighted that was uh I know that was one I found weird as well just because uh, like just the weird that like, he'd specify that. I guess.
1: Yeah. And, and that, that was really strange that there's an assumption that you're really, you can only be Christian or Jewish, mm-hmm. that there is no, there are no other faiths available. And just sort of, it's another one of those weird, implicit evangelical assumptions that if you live inside this bubble, that's really all the world is. And at the risk of bashing, I'm going to say there's a lot of elements of this book that distinctly lack imagination and perspective on kind of a wider world. And I think we're, we're in for that for the long haul. That's going to be all the way through the last book. The world is the way that these particular evangelicals assume it to be. right? And we got just got to be on board with that. If we're going to buy into any of these plot events.
2: Right. And uh, another interesting uh, thing I've noticed is uh, the whole like left behind and like carried away is kind of like uh... Oh no! Anytime they say "left behind" or like "carried away" or like like a synonym, it's almost like they look to the camera almost. If you've noticed, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like a title drop, right? Yeah, it is. It is almost like a title drop, which is kind of funny.
2: And also, uh, the other alternate theory that's not space aliens is it's like a Russian death ray that like leaves your clothes behind that they developed.
1: Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Russian Death Ray, Russian Death Ray, space aliens. And look, if I'm writing this book, I'm going to find it difficult to put alternative theories in the mouths of my characters, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. without making them sound ridiculous. Because the conceit that Jesus Christ comes back and takes all of the real Christians out of their clothes, leaving their tooth fillings and their hair clips and everything like that behind, that's ridiculous. You know, in the context of of any type of grounded narrative. Um, So you you do kind of have to accept that these things aren't that crazy. So I, I'm not going to rag on the book too much for doing that. Like, I I think it's at least a valid effort on the part of, Mm -hmm. of Jerry B Jenkins to say, well, yeah, there's going to be people with other theories that would make sense. And we're going to get a big one. Yeah. Um, actually, later on in this part, we have a character put forward what ends up being a pretty rational, potentially valid explanation.
2: Yeah, and uh, I actually have a lot in that section highlighted too, like how they kind of, like they explain it. They go a little bit almost Star Trek with the techno babble. if we're referring to the same part. I think we are. Uh, but um, it, yeah, yeah. All right.
1: But then this wraps up pretty tidily. They both book a flight to Atlanta. Um, The planes are back up in the air. The planes are running. Now, we are at this point around a week from the initial event. Um, The initial event that I'm going to lovingly refer to going forward as Laundry Day, the day of the rapture. So we're Laundry Day plus seven. This particular portion ends going into the next chapter with the two of them agreeing to go to New Hope Village Church and get the tape.
2: Uh, yeah, the, the tape will become a central part of uh, this section. Um, it's uh, essentially a, um, a pastor records uh, a message uh, to the people left behind.
1: The pastor of this fictional church records a, uh, a rapture tape for people who are left behind. Basically, in case of rapture, watch this, um, which, given the context and the worldview, makes a lot of sense to do. Um, and what's an extra little bonus gem for us is that the creators of the Left Behind series and the giant Left Behind media empire that was existent around around the, uh, the turn of the millennium actually produced this tape that you can actually purchase with actual money on actual VHS. Luckily, we don't have to do that because we have it all on YouTube. It actually is on YouTube. You can watch it and we are going to watch it for a future episode.
2: And I am very like, cause that's the, that's a bit of world building that I actually really like. How okay, they actually made the tape. So hypothetically, if this scenario happens, people in th- that scenario be watching a left behind tape, which I think is a, a weird bit of meta.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they really did sell this tape. Like you could buy it um, when Tim LaHaye and and Jerry B Jenkins would go on speaking tours. You could buy this and the books at the same little book counter, the little merch counter after their performances. They would recommend that people bought this and would keep it um, at their churches or in their homes or something so that they could access it or that people who needed it could access it. It's, It's a really interesting idea.
2: One of the ideas that I actually thought about, like when I was reading this chapter, if I wonder if someone like disinspired more people to make their own, like kind of like this is, this would kind of be like protocol. It had to, right? Yeah. And because you you know how there's like that whole uh, thing and I'm not sure if this is real but there's always this old adage like well planes actually have to keep a non-Christian aboard to be able to land and that's just an urban legend I'm not sure if anywhere that's true
0: oh
1: that's that couldn't possibly be true that's that's crazy
2: right but uh, that's something I've always heard like growing up that was like um, uh, connected to all of this is uh, people be like yeah you know that like a lot of airline procedure to keep a non-Christian on board so they can land the plane which I guarantee Tea, like, probably came from, like, stuff surrounding this book, too. Absolutely. It had to, right? Like, the whole beginning of the story takes place on a plane
1: and yeah, that has to be the case. That is crazy. So, moving on, we actually get back to Buck's perspective. So, Buck finally makes his trip um, to the UK uh, because he gets a hold of another one of his many, many contacts, um, a guy in Scotland Yard named Alan Tompkins.
2: Like, uh, Because uh, they've worked together before if I am um,
1: uh... Yeah, Dirk's, mu- Dirk's mutual friend.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, he starts the call with um, uh, like uh, acting very coded because like like, starting now, like, stuff is tense for Buck. Like, he's being watched a lot of times. Like, he doesn't know, like, when he's being watched and when he's not. It's, like, it's a very, like, um, uh, at any moment, anything could happen to Buck. And as we start to see, stuff just starts popping off.
1: Uh, Buck accidentally woke up as Jack Ryan from a Tom Clancy novel, and uh, <laughs> nobody told him, is basically what the rest of the book for a good portion is about to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He and Buck meet up in in London. Uh, they go to a pub together.
2: A dark pub, mind you.
1: a dark pub. I'm sure it's a dark pub. Um, there are, are wooden fixtures in the pub. Everybody's watching football. Um, there are some hobbits in the corner. Um, it's the most English of
2: English pubs. Yeah, and uh, also Buck is hungry. Just he he start he like downs like two mugs of beer, orders a sandwich, and then like gets a soda and just goes to town. Uh,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. That was a uh, that was an interesting um, little detail. It specifically mentions a few times Buck is eating way too much. Yeah,
1: it, it has this weird fixation on his food, but. Um, That's all buildup for them beginning to discuss Dirk's death. And Alan, who has investigated the crime scene, comes to Buck with the knowledge that this could not have possibly been a suicide. And it is not a suicide because as Buck and Alan both know, Dirk is a southpaw. Yeah. And the gun was found in his right hand and he was shot through the right temple. Mm-hmm. Pretty easy. I think I uh I think I played a case in Phoenix right where I defended someone based on that logic.
2: Yeah, but uh despite this major discrepancy no one's talking about it and that's kind of like a really tense um thing is like uh Alan right is uh, um, uh, is trying to uh, say, like, hey, don't don't report on this at all.
1: Yeah, and here's where we get into some of the weird um, Tom Clancy type stuff. Uh, Alan is telling Buck, you need to walk away, you need to get away from this. The typical speech to the thriller protagonist of this is too big, this is bigger than you. You need to get away from all this. And we find out that Alan was visited by what the book calls a goon, a heavy. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Like like I said, like out of uh, Left field, we'll just get these weird terms thrown around. And it, I, it is because, I guess, um, uh, this is from the 90s, but um, it, it is uh, he, a heavily dated.
1: Right, and so he, he gets visited by this goon who tells him uh, to tell his friend Williams... To uh, to stay away from the Dirk case,
2: and Alan uh, initially was going to per- uh, pursue it a little bit, uh, but then he went to see uh, Mister Todd Cothran and uh, get some really uh, weird dialogue with him. Like he even starts using turn. Uh, it specifically says he's like, "Tell you what, Governor," and he's just like, "Oh crap, that's uh, that's not normal." <laughs> That's just, no, it's not. Yeah, they don't use governor on people of my stature.
1: Yeah, which is so funny. Like this, this to I guess Jerry B. Jenkins. Everyone in London is either a posh or a Cockney. You can't be both, and <laughs> you can't code switch between the two. <laughs> Otherwise, just the entire um, everything in British society just falls to
2: pieces. Right.
1: That <laughs> so he goes to see Todd Cothran, who as a review from the last portion. Uh, Todd Cothran is another one of the international money men who is in with Jonathan Stonegal, a.k.a. not George Soros, with Stonegal being the American arm and Cothran being the British arm of these international money men who are involved in this conspiracy. And so he goes to meet Cothran, and we have a absolute Guy Ritchie stare down between these two men where Cothran calls Tompkins' boss and says... Oh, right, right, I got your man here. I think I'll just kill him.
2: And he's just like, oh, go ahead. If you have to kill him, do it. And I'll help you clean it up, mate. <laughs> because everyone in this is a character from a Guy Ritchie movie. I'm like, yeah, it's like, and what happened if his name happened to be Alan Tompkins? Just like that, plain as day. And Sullivan said, I come over there and dispose of the boarding myself. Well, uh, well, I got the picture
1: yeah <laughs> I don't know we we can't get through some of this prose because it's it's absolutely ridiculous.
0: Right.
1: It's adorable. like i I really have a fondness for the way this is written, but it is it is high camp ridiculous right. Um, but we're supposed to take this absolutely seriously because in addition to the greatest uh, supernatural event in the history of all humanity happening, there is also a massive global conspiracy um that our characters are just happening to stumble upon. And we'll find out later that that global conspiracy and this massive supernatural event may or may not be related. So as we keep moving, they have the conversation, Tompkins and Buck have the conversation of, well, I'm not going to back down from this story because I'm a journalist and I'm best journalist boy and that's what I do. Buck comes up with a plan. He's going to use his fake passport, which he just has and I'm sure is absolutely legal.
2: <laughs> yeah, Mr. George Oreskovich, not Buck yes, Williams. Yes, uh,
1: Fakey McFake name. Which is Georgia Reskovich any worse than all the rest of these characters' awful names?
2: Right. Like in, in this in this uh, in this setting, this this is just this is just a normal name.
1: Yeah, it's just Bob Smith. So they decide that they're and and this really does read like a, an airport book thriller, which is what it is. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's ever um a good idea for us to get away from the fact that that is the level of prose that we are reading. It's an airport book. It's for people who are literally about to get on a plane and need some reading that's not going to challenge them too much, um, that they can consume very easily, that there's not a lot of big ideas. It's a lot of twists and turns, but it's essentially a writ large morality play that's the kind
2: of fiction
1: that we're dealing with here so what we end up with is alan takes a walk away Mm -hmm. uh to his car yeah
2: alan goes to start the car
1: right uh they tell him that he left his lights on yeah so he goes in to to turn the light off and uh as he goes to the car what happens well the car blows up killing alan Thompson. (laughs) Now, Buck is 0 for 2 on British friends. So his, his first buddy got suicided. His second buddy got blowed up. And, um, yeah, things are getting spicy in Buckland. Buck has to make a split-second decision. He takes his real credentials, tosses them into the fire, essentially faking his own death
2: stares at alan Tompkins's leg and torso for oh that's right
1: yes they describe how his leg and torso are just sitting
2: there yeah buck's in such a hurry he forgets his laptop which um i
1: yeah believes his laptop at the hotel which i
2: i i, I hope the lap I, I i can't remember if the laptop comes back later does it does anyone get buck's lap well we'll see but uh, that I, I I don't think they do in
1: this portion or if that thread ever gets tied up, I don't remember. Because gotcha. I,
2: I remember uh, like this is start like um, kind of like lines like that are starting to like give the theme like, oh man, like he doesn't know like where his information is because he has like an electronic backup as his files. But I guess this is kind of starting to play like book is uh, being watched and he's like uh, making a few mistakes. So um uh, that that's kind of like the vibe I get from it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And he uh, makes a rush to the airport because he's going to fly home Um, and he's going to fly home under his fake name of George Oreskovich. And he adopts probably the worst disguise possible. Um, He buys a hat off of a cabbie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which I assume just makes him look like uh, the groundskeeper from like any British estate or like he's a side character in a Harry Potter movie. Yeah. Um, he's just got one of those cabbie greenskeeper hats uh, that he probably pulls down over his face. Yeah. Essentially, he walks into the airport wearing the equivalent of like glasses with a funny mustache.
2: Right describes it as two large fisherman style hat and he just like wearing i don't know it's kind of like his uh his uh clark Kent glasses but it
1: sounds it might be like a holden caulfield hat is that is that what this is i think so oh it might be (laughs) yeah so he's just walking in trying not to act suspicious at all because i imagine like Buck is an up-and-comer, yuppie kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He's probably a pretty snappy dresser. And then it's clashing 100% with his Holden Caulfield hat he has decided to wear. So we assume he makes it on the plane. And uh, we cut back to Chapter 11
2: and Ray and Chloe. Yep. Uh, so now, instead of just a sad boy in the house, we have uh, both of them, like, cooped up and sad. So at least Rayford's not alone in his misery anymore. Yep. Sad, sad boy and Child of sad boy. Yeah, ed- edgy uh edgy daughter, as we'll start to get I think this is where the edge starts.
1: Edgy college girl, absolutely. She's uh because one thing that you will uh you'll hear a lot in evangelical circles, especially, um there is actually a lot of disdain thrown at things like college education. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, Ac- uh, yeah at like academia, just,
1: uh, yeah, because yeah. it's it's left wing and evangelicalism by and large tends to swing toward the right. Um, so there is an assumption that if you go get an education, it's going to take you further away from God, and it's going to take you further away from your faith. And there's a lot of campus outreach programs that are built around that. So Chloe is planted. Into the story as that kind of straw man. She is the West Coast intellectual, the eternal skeptic, which you call the edgy atheist. She is absolutely placed in the story to be that voice, and essentially, she's just set up to have all of her very rational, reasonable arguments shot down by the men in the room.
2: Yeah, and even like uh I, there was even a part where it even says like the the guy put her in his place, like um, because like you know. Uh, They start out, there's a few lines, like one, like Chloe's talking resignedly when they're in this church and they meet um, Bruce Barnes, who is like the interim pastor because the real pastor's gone. So they're kind of like this brief, like power, not power vacuum, I guess like clerical vacuum.
1: Yeah, I kind of want to talk about Bruce for a second um, because this is is not a spoiler, but Bruce is going to become another one of our Avengers Bruce is placed as a pretty interesting figure in the sort of left behind lore and as it relates to the evangelical way of viewing the world. And you could be forgiven reading the Bruce, I'm going to call it his testimony because that's what they would probably call it in church. You'd be, you'd be forgiven listening to Bruce's testimony and not understanding why he was left behind. The book goes to great extent who tried to explain that, but it's it's still a little bit confusing. So let's, let's go ahead and get into it, and I want to hear what you thought of it because you mentioned him putting Chloe in her place. Essentially, she comes in swinging saying, okay, this is not, this wasn't the rapture, this wasn't God, um, I don't believe any of that. And Bruce has to, like you said, put her in her place by telling her his story. So what did you make of Bruce's tale?
2: Oh, yeah, so his whole thing... Um, uh- Um, If uh, we're talking is he's telling Chloe about like how he like his whole horror story, and this will be kind of like repeated throughout the book, um, uh, where like it's just everyone recounting like just the horrifying thing that they had to go through. Um, af- because they weren't strong enough Christians. And that is something that even from a, uh, kind of what they allude to is in theological circles, there is this spectrum between liberal Christianity and evangelical Christianity. And on the liberal side, it's where you kind of, you, you don't believe in complete infallibility. You um, uh, don't believe in scripture. So like sometimes you'll have other books that have that are on like the same level. And from this point of view, that barnes is giving he's 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 essentially he was like oh yeah i was um once a, a little bit like that not entirely but he, he definitely like describes a lifestyle that was a little bit more um uh, on the liberal side of things and that's kind of how he's incorporated into the story
1: right and um speaking from my background a little bit growing up in an evangelical sect um The idea here that Bruce – the thing that Bruce is missing specifically is that he is what they would call going through the motions. The reason why he was left behind is because he wasn't a true Christian. Big old scare quotes around true. Um, And -hmm. what makes a true Christian is absolute belief – 100% fundamental view of scripture and several types of actions. And this is where it gets a little weird and confusing because as an evangelical, you 100% have to believe that you are a dirty, dirty sinner, that there's nothing you can do. No action, no good works, nothing can save you. Rather, the reason why you do good things as a Christian is because you are already saved And you just have so much goodness and grace welling up inside you that you can't help but put it out there into the world. Believing in God isn't enough. Doing good things isn't enough. Believing you're a sinner isn't enough. There is a very specific line you have to walk of believing you're a sinner, asking for forgiveness, truly believing that you are below nothing and that the only way that you're saved is through grace, and then turning from sin as evidence of that.
2: Yeah, and- that breed of uh, Christianity is actually what led me away from the faith because there's almost like this degree of self deprecation to it. And it, it it makes you feel weird it makes you feel like you're incomplete and that and they say like oh yeah that's why you need to like just worship and like accept the forgiveness but like that doesn't get rid of like a lot of this self-disgust that starts to be cultivated by a lot of this um, stuff because I remember I can't remember what it was if I was in church if this is on the radio but this one but like yeah like verbatim like the the person says you got to know that you're dirty rotten like just the scum of the earth, and that you can be fixed. Yeah, and it even um, uh, and he he kind of goes more into like the whole liberalism uh, or like the uh, the more liberal Christianity kind of uh, jab that it throws at, where he says I had missed it, I had been a phony, I had set up my own brand of Christianity that may have made for a life of freedom, but it cost me my soul. Say like, and so there seems to be a uh, evangelical jab That's saying like like oh if you um if you take something from it that we don't like then you're part of you're part of the problem
1: right and you're going to be left behind because god will separate the sheep from the goats and will look at you and say specifically depart from me for i never knew you you were never truly a christian that's actually from the bible um mm-hmm. and that was a phrase that got used a lot now I wrote in my notes, Bruce's harrowing story actually kind of worked for me. And just to get into a little bit of my personal experience growing up reading these books, so picture me probably about 11, 12, I'm reading these books and it brought me to a place. I'm just beginning to get to that age of accountability that they refer to. I'm going into middle school, starting to question my faith. And at that point, I started to develop a real fear of experiencing things exactly the way Bruce did. So to give a little synopsis of that, Bruce is laying in bed with his wife, reading a magazine. Um, It's late at night. The wife gets up to either go turn some lights out, check on the kids, something, and she doesn't come back. He stands up, looks around the house, looks for her, looks for the kids, and finds nothing but clothes And uh, everything left behind and notices that his wife did not, in fact, get up to check on the kids. She disappeared.
2: And then it, it then after that it starts getting into like uh, why Bruce believed that he was left behind and he was like um uh, well one he um he it's not that it, it gets into tithing and it's not that he didn't tithe it's that he lied about it and then because uh, there's this whole thing about giving like ten percent of your income to like the church but he would he would say that he did it and then drop like two dollars in there
1: you know as someone who at that same age didn't tithe I didn't read my Bible. Um, as much as I claimed to. I was very similar to Bruce. This story hit me very, very close to home when I was that age, to the point where I can specifically remember getting up in the middle of the night when the house got too quiet, walking around and making sure that my parents and the rest of my family were still in their beds.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: I'm not kidding. That actually happened. Yeah, and it and it scared the ever-living crap out of me.
2: And I... um. I- and I have to admit, too, that was um, that was something like as I was kind of like because uh, throughout my teens, I would fall in and fall out. I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but I got baptized twice uh, along my teens and. um uh, that was always like a worry that because I would always worry if like if my family didn't like um uh, like contact me for a little bit or if I um uh, didn't see anyone for like a little bit I'd be like did the rapture just happen right like that that would be that's like a constant reoccurring thought um, uh, that I would have
1: and how crazy yeah. is that 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 that's that like we look at it now as adults back at that and that sounds mm-hmm. bonkers. But it's a real, like, intrusive thought. And especially if you're someone that struggles with, maybe struggles with anxiety, maybe struggles with depression, you know, maybe struggles with um, some self-image things, um, imposter syndrome, anything like this that may cause those types of intrusive thoughts to amplify this kind of view of the world is not just incorrect, it is also potentially very destructive psychologically speaking, and I know we're we're coming down real hard on uh, this particular type of rapture theology and if if you're a Christian, if this is truly what you believe and you're listening i i I've been there, I understand um just take what we're going over here, what Gavin and I are trying to discuss as. Our personal experiences with it. We're not here to bash you, but this is just where we're coming from and how close this hits to home.
0: Yeah,
2: and uh, going into my kind of uh, the title that I've given myself at the beginning of these two episodes, the ecumenical fanboy. Like I'm, I'm in the same thing. Like I'm as a uh, as a Christian. Like we're we're part of the same religion, and I understand that we both have like really different uh, views on this. And we, as into the the uh, if any uh, evangelical listeners reading. Um, But we have very different views on this. However, like that we still have like a link where we can like talk about these things. And these are still like worries that I have. And this is like um, things that I talk about with certain um, people. And uh, I... I, I, I want to understand you, but we, we, we come from like a, a slight bit of disagreeance. But I, I believe that even with that disagreeance, like we can, we can still like um, uh, garner a lot of good wisdom uh, from like the common book that we share. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Because as you and I have discussed off mic, there are several different interpretations of Revelation. And throughout this series, we're going to get one um, that is very specific, very prophecy focused.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but there are a lot of different ways of interpreting it this particular apocalyptic one is one that just you and I are a little bit closer to because of our upbringing okay I did actually want to put one more coda onto this Chloe again brings up a pretty valid point something that I said in the first episode that if this is God's plan and all of the other things that are to come along with it, the car crashes, the plane crashes, the suicides, all those people who didn't get another chance, that God is a sort of merciless, um, very cold, callous type of being. Um, and she puts that forward, and Bruce has an answer, but it's kind of equally cold. it's it's very much uh, hey, there's no guarantee you could die in a plane crash any anytime. you could die in a car crash any anytime, which inside the evangelical bubble sounds plausible like it sounds viable like like, okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, you could die on the way home from church today. don't don't delay, get saved today. but from the outside, it just hit me it it's hitting different. yeah. Now, that particular line of, wow, okay, so you're kind of getting saved under the gun a little
2: bit. Yeah, that's a common talking point. So
1: that that hit very different for me. So Ray, um, Bruce asks them to come back to church. Ray says, probably. Chloe says, absolutely not. So we st- we now have a, a split in their household. A really interesting thing that the book starts to do in a couple of chapters is they basically lay out what is going to start happening over the next um few years in the book's timeline but uh we get a real brief look at buck uh you mean um, George rescovich oh sorry George rescovich yeah i didn't i didn't mean to uh to, to use the improper name there um so he makes it back um he he's still undercover um and that's really all we hear from buck at the beginning of chapter 12 before we jump back to ray and chloe We hear Ray regretting how he's raised Chloe, kind of having that internal sad monologue again. Um, And then we get into the no guarantees bit again with the line, people were being shot, maimed, raped,
2: and killed every day. Oh, yeah. The, uh, The state of the world has gone down since this event happened. It, like, like, like people are, like, checking on, gra- like, people are going to their family's graves, too, and, like, seeing if their corpses disappear, but even goes into the specification that, like, other people are just, like, digging up bodies and trying to get, like, rich people jewelry. Oh, people are grave robbing, yeah.
1: Which, like, that's, which is crazy. Like, I don't think that grave robbing is nearly as lucrative uh, now as it was in, like, the 1850s. <laughs>
2: But it's making a comeback in the rapture very hard. Apparently.
1: Um, so he and Chloe have the have another faith talk, the the next in the line of those, where it's Ray going, you should be a Christian, and Chloe going, I don't think so. And <laughs> that just happens several times throughout the next few chapters.
2: Right, like, uh, even like, Chloe's, like, like- because there's even one part where, like, I can kind of relate to, to Chloe a little bit because some of this, um, uh, because there's even this one line, maybe it is, I feel like your, your mother and brother got promoted and I didn't, she just goes, gross.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and considering the amount of times that I've written the word gross outside of a few of the lines in my notes, um, kind of like last week where I wrote yikes and oof, this week it ended up being gross. That's my version of precious. Instead of writing precious out in front of these uh, lines, I write gross.
2: And uh, he uh, he even uh, like brings up the whole like, uh, but kind of makes a, a deviation because he's like a pilot that's always um, uh, been like, you know, it's e- uh, it's uh, it's much safer um, uh, to fly than driving a car statistically. And even he's just kind of like Chloe, I'm really worried about if our plane crashes. I want you to be saved.
1: Yeah, um, and we get kind of after the Bruce Barnes chapter where, and I didn't mention this trope, but. Um, There is an evangelical meme of what they call fire insurance, Mm -hmm. um, which is salvation to keep you out of hell. Uh, This is not to spoil a book that comes way, way later um, in which the idea of fire insurance during a plane crash absolutely is a plot point. Not going to say who, not going to say how, but it is one distinct memory I have from this series. But the idea of fire insurance basically being the bare minimum of salvation you need to get into heaven, like a, a deathbed conversion type of uh, type of salvation. So when he says that, you know, he he's worried about Chloe, he wants her to be saved.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We just got done hearing Bruce say that he basically had fire insurance faith, but now Ray is advocating that to Chloe. So- the contradictions here are pretty manifest right here in this chapter.
2: Right, and uh, then we have the the VHS gets popped in, and we get Vernon Billings of New Hope Village Church, Mount Prospect, Illinois.
1: Oh, uh, the bad the bad name train just keeps on rolling. <laughs> Vernon Billings.
2: Yeah, and, like, just the, the name uh, New Hope Village Church of Mount Prospect, Illinois, just, like, adds to, like, just the, the mythic feel that it's trying to build up of this place.
1: Yep, Star Wars Episode Four, New Hope Village Church. <laughs> That's all I can think of whenever they refer to it as New Hope. I'm just like,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Star Wars. Uh, and I, I wonder, I honestly wonder if Jenkins did that on
2: purpose. I, a part of me wants to, cause like Jenkins, he probably would have like, cause you know, this was written in the nineties and star Wars was like a major part of like, you know, uh, I guess st- like where a lot of people got their inspiration. So I guarantee you Je- um, and Jenkins is younger is the younger one, right?
1: Yeah. He's the younger one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So definitely star Wars was a, was a crucial part of his upbringing.
1: And I, I got to put us in a time and place. It was the late nineties not only had the special editions come out. Um,
2: oh my God! The earlier the
1: prequels were, it, episode one was either in theaters or about to be in theaters. So Star Wars was everywhere, and mm-hmm. this is another period where, rather than just referring to episode four as just Star Wars, now they were tacking uh, more commonly the A New Hope title underneath it. So. That's my personal headcanon, The Church is Named After Star Wars, and I'm just going to go ahead and and run with that for the rest of this uh, podcast, The Church is Named After Star Wars. So he pops in the tape, and um, I threw in another personal note for this. I listened to this portion of the book, because as you guys know, I actually do the audiobooks. I listened to this portion of the book with a great deal of nostalgia. I actually had that tinge of nostalgia for these verses, for the way that this message is presented, for all of these talking points. It it felt like sitting back in an old church that I haven't been to in years – um and being present for that it was a it was a really surreal experience because we get into the 1st Corinthians chapter 15 with the behold i tell you a mystery passage which i don't know if you actually wrote that down but i actually have it right here
2: yeah yeah i have it i have it uh like um like um uh, instead of highlighting it i circled it cuz it's
1: did you write precious next to it
2: yes i wrote precious no i didn't <laughs> All
1: right, you want to take this one?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'll read this section. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must... Uh, put on incorruption and this mortal must put on uh, oh, and, this, and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on uh, immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your sting oh Hades where is your victory the sting of death is sin and the sin uh, and the strength of sin is the law but strength but 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 thanks to be um, to be God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I'll even admit that is that's not a good translation of that uh, or an entirely clear translation of that section. And even Rayford's just like, uh
1: yeah, um, you mentioned him being a little bit confused. And anyone would be confused reading that because it's it's cryptic. It's kind of repetitive. Essentially, this is a very popular passage among evangelicals when it talks about not just the rapture, but just death in general. It gets read at a lot of funerals. The, oh, death, where is your staying? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because the idea is that not only will the event of the rapture rapture the existing living members of the church, but also those who have died and are in corruptible mortal bodies moldering in their graves also be taken up. That's why people are opening up their families' tombs now during the story and looking to see if they are still there. What that actually means as far as when people die and go to heaven or did they before the rapture or do they die and go to some sort of Beetlejuice-style waiting room... That was never explained to me growing up. Um, I still don't have a a good consensus on whether that's the case or not. But essentially what this is saying is that death and the grave, um, which is translated sometimes as the grave, sometimes as Hades, but the place of the dead, because it says Hades because the New Testament was written in Greek. And so Hades um, or Tartarus, just any sort of place of death has no power over people. And some places actually translate Hades to hell which you know there's a there's a whole can of worms we could open up theologically there but I don't think we're
2: going to right now And uh, I'd like to just uh, highlight, because how Pastor Billings actually describes this section real quick. He he says, when Paul says we shall not all sleep, he means that we shall not all die. And he's saying that this corruptible being must put on an incorruptible body, which is to last for all eternity. When these things have happened, when the Christians who have already died and those who um, are still living receive their immortal bodies, the rapture of the church will have taken place.
1: Right, and um, so he's really laying it out there, and he goes from explaining the mechanics of the rapture into the first of two instances of laying out what is to come, Mm -hmm. because the idea of interpreting not just Revelation, but books by the Apostle Paul, certain passages from Daniel, other portions of the Bible that scholars like Tim LaHaye have decided interlink with one another. He's decided that these interlink and this is what they are using as the basis for the fiction, for what is going to happen during the years of the tribulation. And we actually get an explanation of the rapture occurs, the world falls into turmoil because Um, I think I did the math and it was something like maybe 10% max of the world's population um, being evangelicals, which seems high to me, but this is, I was looking at the world population in 1999, maybe 10% of the population disappears, which is an enormous chunk. And the world falls into chaos and then enters a time of vast trial and tribulation, which is often called the great tribulation.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Oh my God. Uh, just real quick, I know last episode we talked about this a Thanos now, but this is the Thanos tithe.
1: Oh yeah, it's a Thanos tithe. <laughs> yeah, instead of fifty percent, it's uh, it's ten percent. <laughs> yeah, it's very much, very much a Thanos moment of, uh, but it's it's significantly less. So we have a, an actual tenth, even though it doesn't say in the Bible, it'll be ten a tenth. Um, though we do get some other numbers um, that are biblically significant. Um, A vast time of trial and tribulation where people are to leave their quest for self-fulfillment and turn into Christ um, or turn to Christ. This is a big evangelical thing is that the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of personal fulfillment, the pursuit of wealth, all of these things are on their face supposed to be distractions from following christ now the degree to which with the rise of prosperity gospel in the early 2000s and even a little before Mm -hmm. the degree to which most evangelical sects truly practice that is highly debatable at least on its face this sort of evangelical belief is supposed to be a turn away from the wants of the self and a turn toward behaving like christ
2: Right, and this kind of leads to an oh-no moment for Rayford because he, uh, he realizes that this is just the beginning. Like, if he thought losing his family was bad, it's just going to get worse from here.
1: And this brings up another point of God is a jerk um, because not just the violence and the upheaval of the rapture um, is something we're going to have to deal with. We're also going to have to deal with seven years of awful um, that's going to keep getting worse. And Bruce is going to get into this in later chapters as he sort of becomes the exposition mouthpiece of telling us what we have to look forward to for the rest of the tribulation. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get a couple of other greatest hits of the uh, the Revelation rapture theology, a great lie announced by the media and a one world leader. So this is where the conspiracy theory, the distrust of mainstream media, all of this starts to sort of combine into the rapture theology that the media is going to become a mouthpiece for a one world government under a charismatic one world leader a great deceiver from europe who will bring the world together with miracles he will make many promises but he will not keep them and he's finally in this specific book of left behind given the name antichrist yep so i I want to know something gav when you were growing up um how much did the word antichrist get
2: thrown around I remember every, it was kind of like Anytime a new president would be elected, there'd be a sect of Christians. And I still see this to the, uh, to this very day that they're just so ready to like label any like any U.S. president, anyone in the media as antichrist. Like it happened with George Bush, people call him the antichrist it happened with Obama. It's happening with Trump right now. Like among the Christians, like people just love to like um uh, throw that name onto, onto anyone that starts getting popularity.
1: Oh yeah. I remember it being built. Clinton, really? Yeah, yeah. I specifically remember Bill Clinton being the Antichrist. Yeah, uh, Bill Clinton up.
2: was just slightly before my time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I grew up in prime Clinton time, and I just remember him being the uh, the president that played the saxophone, and then all of a sudden, my parents and everyone else were very mad at for some reason with a girl. <laughs> <laughs> what happened with that lady? Um, that's all I really remember as a kid. But then after hearing all this, watching the tape, our boy Ray completes his origin story, falls to his knees. And says his salvation prayer. He has now taken up the mantle. He is a true Christian. He is. Born again, and he's uh, his his journey is somewhat complete for this portion of the book.
2: Yep, and now he has kind of his next mission, though he need because he's from now on he's always be like his his mind is on Chloe because now that he's accepted it, he needs to get her to accept it as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now we get a quick digression for Buck. Um, Another, this is a very Ray heavy portion of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, We get a quick digression from Buck that he makes it home to JFK. Um, and he's reached out to by his old buddy, Chaim. Mm-hmm. So, Chaim Rosenzweig and new character, or at least uh, newly introduced character, Nikolai Carpathia, both want to meet with Buck.
2: And uh, at this point, he's still believed dead by the media, if I believe, right?
1: Yeah, there's that one wrench in the plan is that everybody thinks Buck is dead and the national media is, uh, is reporting
2: it. Uh, but however, Nikolai Carpathia, he knows. Like he uh, he's a he's just a right old friend Nikolai a real people's man.
1: Yeah, he's a real man of the people. He is he's he's almost inhumanly charismatic. You might say.
2: Yeah, like he just he just knows things sometimes. But you know what? I think he's gonna be like one of the big protagonists of this bookshelf. Yeah,
1: he's uh he's got almost a devilish charm about him.
2: <laughs> but I'm gonna get ahead of myself.
1: <laughs> so we cut back to Ray. Um, yeah. I don't know about you, but this next scene with Ray also hit my nostalgia button pretty hard. Okay, Um, He goes back to New Hope and and little background on me. I grew up in Assemblies of God. I grew up in what they'd call a charismatic um, denomination of evangelicals. Lots of testimony, lots of crying, lots of emotion, lots of speaking in tongues, lots of hand raising, lots of emotion. So when he goes back to New Hope, the place is packed. It's wall-to-wall cars. He had to park three blocks away. The description of the scene reminded me a lot of the way my church looked the day 9-11 happened. Oh, really? Like, truly. I Yeah. And because I did go to church with my parents the day that it happened, there was a prayer service. place was packed to the gills. Um, people getting up and praying and... Everything like that. And It's a very informal service, and it's actually pretty believable. It's a lot of really sad people who are looking for answers. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of here for it. Like I, th- this portion really. This
2: person, yeah. This portion, I also like uh, found um, uh, really good. And even when Bruce like got up and said like I'm not in the pulpit because um that is um uh, yeah because because even Bruce is like I can't stand up there. And I thought that was a really cool part because like um uh, me like growing up, I always like really loved um uh like religious um stories like your clerics and stuff and this kind of like is really painting bruce as like just a very humble like you know clerical figure like he's like i can't stand up there like i'm I'm not worthy of that
1: no i love bruce i think i think bruce is great he's not my favorite character we're reserving that for nikolai nikolai is still my favorite character and buck's still mine buck's still yours (laughs) um but we've got bruce getting up there and actually again saying things that sound perfectly reasonable. Like, you may resent God for all this. And I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah, I would. I do. God's a jerk. (laughs) Like, God did this. He had the option not to do this. He could have done literally anything but this. But he did. And so there's a little bit of lip service paid to people being upset and angry and mad at God because now you have no choice but to accept God's existence because things are happening the way that they are described in the Bible, Mm -hmm. just cause it happened. And I believe in you, God, now doesn't mean I have to like you. So I'm, I'm really on board with that, even though it's ultimately shown to be a futile exercise because it's either, you know, believe and accept him or go to hell let's not forget that that gun is the one we're constantly under. But I I get it. Like, I I think that there's definitely an attempt is made to talk rationally about these events.
2: Right. And uh, um, because like how my theology and this uh, differ is I'm a, I fall under the universalism branch of Christianity where I believe um, uh, in universal salvation, that if there is a heaven in the very end, I guess the whole herd's going to heaven. Like there's not going to be like, a separation like the whole herd will make it in in the very end you know right and yeah like i like the attempt like but in this story i like um uh, like um what they're doing with that kind of uh like perspective and then you get like some really cool, a uh, really cool moment where like uh, Bruce is like, all right, if anyone wants to come up to the front, like, you know, your, your typical, like, I guess uh, like my church, like they're kind of like closing ceremonies. They like come up to the the place and, uh, and, and pray at the altar. And uh, he gets up and then dozens of other people, like he, he just like can hear in the room, just the amount of people that rise when Bruce says this.
1: Yeah, it's it's this massive outpouring of emotion. Which for me, that was every Sunday. That yeah. was the kind yeah, of services we had every Sunday. The singing and the testimony and the people standing and raising their hands like that. That was absolutely the world I grew up in.
2: Yeah, and they even they even get into like that. Everyone starts just singing and humming and just like um uh, really just uh, becoming like encapsulated with this.
1: Yeah, and you'd think that like that would get passe and kind of old hat after a while. And I'm sure for some people it did, but like, you've got to understand that level of a dopamine rush in a room full of people is a powerful thing and it makes sense why people would go back to church week after week for that hit
2: yeah it's uh it is uh because uh when you get into it it's almost like a little bit of there's a, there's it's a tad bit of like the same effect that i get when i do theater like i'm in a room of people that all are kind of like working towards the t- same story and it's a similar feeling just on a whole nother level because there's just all these like different connecting bits and even in my uh my current walk I'll, I'll still get that way when like i'm around a bunch of like like-minded people theologically and we're singing the songs that like you know that we can really relate to that like get into what we're talking about yeah you still get that you still get that rush of like i guess belongingness i guess to what you'd say
1: yeah oh it's a buzz for sure there's nothing quite like it and i mean even though i don't believe anymore i absolutely understand mm-hmm. that that buzz. It's a high yeah. for sure. So v- Bruce and Ray leave the service. They go to lunch together um, because uh, as an evangelical, the after church lunch is a tradition. Mm-hmm. Got to go to lunch. Got to pick your buffet. So they go together. Bruce approaches Ray and is trying to build a core group within the church, asks Ray to join. Ray says he'll think about it. Ultimately, he acquiesces and accepts. Um and then and he becomes a
2: level one cleric. He becomes
1: a level <laughs> one cleric. Yeah. Um he, he multi-classes from pilot into cleric. And now we cut back to Buck. So in the next couple chapters are very Buck centric. So Buck reads his own obit. He we find out that he is 30 years old. So um, while he is the greatest journalist ever to journalist, Mm -hmm. um, I'm sitting here at 30 years old making a podcast about him. So, you know, that's something, I guess. (laughs) We read over his far too long list of accomplishments. Um, I don't want to, I think it's cheap to call a character like this a Mary Sue. It's just that he is written as such an accomplished young boy at his tender young age of 30. Right. Which is it's still very funny when they stop to remind us again how good Buck is at everything.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, Buck, like, no uh, no matter, like, he's he's hooking his computer into every phone. Everyone wants to talk to him. He's putting on disguises that um, uh, the right people are seeing through them, but, like, the, but he's still managing to get past, like, all these other people, even though everyone's watching him. Yeah, faking just, his own
1: death. He's, uh, he's globe-trotting, he's got his fake passport, and we're going to see him do some some weird hallway kung fu on somebody a little bit later. It's, oh, it's, yes. It's crazy. Um, so we find out that the bombing uh, that killed Alan Tompkins is blamed on Northern Irish terrorists, which is probably the most 90s thing, 80s and 90s thing. Um, this is clearly written pre-9-11 um, because when people thought terrorists in the 90s, they thought IRA. And we actually talked about this a little off mic, that the car bombing thing, um, especially in the UK, was 100% a trope. It was in Tom Clancy books. It was in all kinds of thrillers and and these different films that were coming out around the same time. The conflict and specifically involving the IRA and terrorist activity coming out of Northern Ireland was a huge thing in the 90s. So blamed on the uh, Northern Irish terrorists. Um, So we cut back to Ray again, um, just for a brief bit, that we have another conversation between Ray and Chloe. Um, Chloe throws out another kind of counterpoint to Ray's conversion, says, I thought God was a God of love and a God of order. And Ray doesn't have a great response. He just goes, eh, fallen world. We live in a fallen world, which I'm sure you've heard that
0: before.
2: Yeah, and that that fallen world thing is something that I hear a lot um uh which you know it's it's part of the uh big story and even to a degree i can i can kind of say okay um uh, but uh, they really just lean uh into that and yeah uh, i
1: don't want to i don't want to go on the attack too much but it is you know at least when i was growing up it was put down as a thing when when something negative happens to the world and we don't want to lay it at god's feet Um, It is a way of laying it at man's feet. Um, Oh, well, man sinned and caused the world to fall. Therefore, bad things happen. Um, It's kind of a a Christian reason for the problem of
2: evil. Mm -hmm. Then we get Steve Plank. Uh, uh, The first thing he says to Buck in this next section is, Nice cap. Yeah, he's holding Caulfield hat, and he and he's also has a bit of a scraggly beard. So Buck is kind of looking a bit disheveled. He's in a weird fisherman's hat, and he's got like a few day beard, and he's and he's just uh, and he's probably been running on not much sleep. So he's, uh, but he even says like I was never too much for disguises, and but then Steve says something weird like you're not famous enough to need to hide, uh. This is Buck Williams, sir. Dude, he's on like
1: CNN. People are announcing his death on CNN. Like clearly he is famous enough to need to hide. But yeah, so they they have a conversation. We get a little bit more exposition about Carpathia and Buck drops the theory that he thinks that Carpathia is a pawn of the International Money Men and the Council of Ten. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks that that Carpathia is connected to them and that puts Carpathia in a little bit of a, A negative light. Yeah. But then we find out that he gave a speech that morning um, and was ready to give a press conference that he speaks nine languages, that he's surrounded by, he surrounds himself with consultants and experts. He seems to know everything about everything. And uh, specifically that he speaks all the nine languages um, of the UN or or all six languages of the UN and the three languages of his home country. And he speaks them fluently. Right. This guy's a captivating public speaker. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so we leave off of the buck
2: section and we jump back to Ray and him and Chloe are getting lunch at this moment. Cause they just, um, uh, stopped. Um, uh, they just landed and they have enough time just to get away from the airport to be able to, uh, hang out for a bit,
1: specifically the airport in my stomping ground of Atlanta. And I just have to say, I don't know what kind of accent the cab driver... First of all, the idea of a cab driver in Atlanta is really funny because we have terrible public transit. Uh-huh. We also have terrible private uh, transit. Basically, you're going to do Uber or Lyft or you're going to do nothing. But back then, you know, in the 90s, I don't know what the cab game was like back then, but I, I this strains my credulity <laughs> that they're able to get um, a cab
2: in Atlanta. And uh, then they go into a diatribe about this parking garage and just the chaos that happened on laundry day in this parking garage.
1: Oh yeah. Cause apparently laundry day also happened the same day as a Braves game. Um, so the parking <laughs> garage just looks like a parking garage after a Braves game, meaning that it's, it's bumper to bumper and it's so packed up that cranes have to be brought in to pull the cars out. And uh, all I could think of, living in Atlanta and having to drive near Turner Field uh, back when that was the main Brave Stadium was, yeah, that sounds about right.
0: Mm (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: but they don't drop any names. They say a baseball game. Um or they might just say a ball game. Um but I, I assume they mean baseball. Um right. and they're ta- and I assume they're talking about the Braves.
2: Oh god. I I uh yeah, right after parking garage though. It we st- we get into one of the weirdest sections of this book, Shane.
1: Oh, uh, you mean the one where he has to weirdly tell his daughter about fantasizing about his former flight
2: attendant? Yeah, and it goes about as well as perspective where clothes just like uh, Dad, what? He
1: basically is just like gross, dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is gross.
2: And after that, like after he uh, he uh, he uh, tells her, uh, Chloe's just like, wait, so um uh she's coming because yeah because uh rayford's just like well she's coming over here because i want to talk to her about god and hat and uh a close like right you want to talk about god
1: yeah sure you do bud
2: yeah because you just you just lost your mom and now you're telling me all this weird stuff dad what's going on
1: and I mean, it is weird and icky and it only gets worse when we actually talk to Hattie a little bit later. But like, of course, we're seeing things from Ray's point of view. So we know his intentions are pure. And how dare Chloe be such a brat and uh, not take his confession of planning to commit an act of infidelity, not even going through with it. Why? How dare she come so hard at him uh, for that? Right. And Chloe is, again, as this obstinate, just, terrible little like rebellious brat um who is in no way her own
2: person <laughs> right and like it's kind of weird because in evangelical circles there's more of this like kind of like the 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 prod that they do at catholicism against confessional is like hey confess your sins to no man uh don't confess your like your your weird lustful feelings to your your daughter buddy <laughs> Like, if you want to go in that framework, you kind of, you kind of break in the, you kind of break in this now. And, and I think that
1: like, and at least when I was growing up, this was the kind of stuff that was talked about, but it was usually talked about between men. Yeah. Um. You have groups like Promise Keepers and, um. you know, these men's ministries and things like that, where these men would talk about their infidelity or their temptation to infidelity to each other. But like, you don't talk to women about it. Right. And that's never explicitly said But the framework of these groups and these organizations and the biblical curriculum that they followed basically said without saying, you talk about this to other men so that you can support one another. You don't talk to women about this. Yeah. Um, Which is weird. So we cut back to Buck um, and he goes to our boy, Nikolai's press conference.
2: Right. With his two sets of press credentials. uh, credentials. Uh, Yeah. he's, he's, He's still going incognito.
1: And so this is the first time enter. Nikolai Carpathia, my boy, my Romanesque <laughs> Romanian Robert Redford boy. Um,
2: he comes in that Buck's dad calls Italian. Italian, yeah.
1: <laughs> he comes in, and because yeah, they have to make this weird, and it's specifically because they have to fit a prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, because he has to be a son of Rome. He can't be truly Eastern European or. I think they specifically talk about him not being genetically muddied. Mm -hmm. Like they say something weird and uncomfortable like that in the first, uh, or like genetically polluted, which is really gross. Yeah. They say that earlier in the book, but he's a shed over six feet tall, exquisite, his jaw and nose were Roman and strong. Yikes,
2: dude. Oh, but then, oh, but oh man, when he's, when it's, st- I don't know if they get into this chapter, but the, the award that he starts wearing and, and that he starts talking about in interviews too.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, they, I think that comes a little bit later, but he, he starts his press conference for a, a room full of people. He is a perfect and captivating speaker perfect English. He doesn't use contractions. He weaves effortlessly between all nine of the languages that he knows, making sure to translate them back into English. He is obsessed with the UN. Apparently he's some kind of UN fanboy, which even back then the UN was kind of this lame duck organization. And like, you can make the argument it still is. Like, it's just a group that gets together to talk about global issues. It is not a body that is going to take over the world, and this, ha- but you have to accept that it could be in Tim LaHaye's crazy conspiracy brain in order to accept anything else that happens in the story. But he also talks about the IMF, the World Bank. He's hitting all the conspiracy theory greatest hits now, and anyone who was listening to Alex Jones at the time and reading these books was going, "See, see, I told you."
2: Okay, and then he starts. He does this 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 tactic, which I I personally thought was funny but there's a bit of absurdity to it cuz nikolai just start listing every single country's name and everyone
1: yeah, just goes saying, every wild country by name. Like, and, even- and everyone as if they rehearsed it every representative from every country stands up when their country's name is called and it's like they rehearsed it and you can almost hear like the olympic themes swelling in the background right,
2: yeah and even like this part of highlight even uh, the objectivity of the world press had temporarily vanished in what they might previously have written off as jingoism um uh, super patriotism or sanctimony. Like everyone is just like, when your country's name is spoken, you're just like, yeah, Carpathia, Carpathia.
1: <laughs> and this dude, so this dude is shown to have an almost supernatural ability to command a room and to motivate people and inspire feelings of brotherhood and peace and love and camaraderie, even between Across borders of nations, cultures, religions, doesn't matter. And earlier when I mentioned that the Olympic theme started playing, this is not too much of a spoiler because most of you guys have already figured this out by now. What should really be playing is probably the Imperial March from Star Wars when this scene happens. Right. Because this is painted and sorry for... Probably a minor spoiler, but this is painted as a bad thing. This unity between nations, this coming together, this strive for peace and nuclear disarmament. Every single bit of this, bad. This is bad. Don't forget, this is bad. And This really does inform a certain subset of right-wing evangelicals. You know, any sort of globalization or global peace is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, We need war. We need conflict. We need individual sovereignty. Not that the Bible actually says anything about that, but through guys like Tim LaHaye, the idea that the Antichrist represents world peace— automatically paints world peace as a bad thing and that is so insidious and so amazingly poisonous in the way that it has gotten into that portion of christianity at least in america
2: right a lot of times uh, people will also point to the tower of babel story cuz it's like oh we're all we're, we're meant to like not try to um uh, all work together in some ways which is the defense i've heard
1: oh dude you're absolutely right i didn't even think about the it being connected to the tower of babel stuff like it 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 is one Absolutely. Yeah. If you're speaking one language, you're using one currency that is too close to God and God meant for people to be separate, which has all kinds of icky implications. The whole God meant for certain peoples to stay separate thing. Um, But I'll let you guys unpack those on your own because we got to move on into chapter four. Um, So we know that Chloe and Ray make it back to Chicago and then Buck is back at the press conference. So he is... Listening to Nikolai, um, Nikolai's again, this is more of Nikolai just being perfect. Mm-hmm. He's making eye contact, he's addressing everyone by name. He's like, please call me Nick. Yeah, oh um, yeah. See, in I know he's blonde, but in my head, and again, I know that this is almost too perfect. Nikolai is the dude who plays Lucifer in uh, Lucifer. That's that's my guy. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. He's, and I don't even know who played him in the movie. We'll have to look that up when we get to our special episodes of watching the films. But we find out that he has an encyclopedic knowledge of UN history. Um, Basically, the UN used to be great. And then Ronald Reagan happened, Um, which is funny because you have to remember that they're saying the UN is bad, therefore Ronald Reagan good, if you're reading between the
2: lines. Uh, yeah, I remember that was an explicit, it's like, Ronald Reagan even gets name dropped in the book. Oh yeah, and so then, I believe,
1: yep, he does get name dropped, and then he gets, uh, immediately after George H.W. Uh, Bush and his speech about the New World Order get name dropped. Yep. Which is a favorite perennial, like, boogeyman for the uh, conspiracy theorists, is that speech and the world, the words New World Order. <laughs> Right. What we learn is that um, Nikolai is putting together his own team of scientific experts to solve the mystery of the disappearances, headed up by our boy Chaim Rosenzweig, Mm -hmm. which, like, why the biochemist is at the head of this, I don't know. It's just that we just got to pick the best science guy. Right. And the whole world goes crazy for Nikolai after he puts out his theory that it was a surge of electromagnetism, interacting with latent radiation caused by enriching of uranium for nuclear weapons. That's why the disappearances happened.
2: Yeah, we we made too many nukes and then everyone got zapped.
1: Which is kind of foreshadowed earlier in the book when Chloe said everyone's example for, or everyone's explanation for why the disappearances happened is going to be self-serving.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: which is not only ironic, it, <laughs> it's also appropriate for this. So I wrote here in my notes, um, if there is a God, I don't believe he would do things this way. Carpathia is going to speak at the ecumenical conference, so he does put his two cents in on God. Mm -hmm. Everyone is already treating this guy – like
2: Captain America Right and they even call Like uh, you mentioned That it, it's called Nick But even more specifically They call him Saint Nick So you got Literal Santa Claus Like best guy ever Speaks every language Like he's gonna give Everybody Everything that they want P- You know he
1: There can- is literally No version of reality In which this would happen <laughs> Right Especially with a dude From Romania Which as far as Middle America goes Might as well be Russia They probably- Probably think it's still part of Russia. Right? Like, the the target audience for this book probably can't point to Romania on a map. There is no version of reality in which this Romanian guy who looks like Robert Redford gets on TV and immediately in a snap brings the world together. Which... Leads to maybe there's something else going on. Right. Maybe it's not uh, it's not just his winning smile that's causing everybody to come together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Buck is super worried that Stonigle is part of the group wanting to kill him. Stoneagle being Carpathia's financer. Carpathia is involved with Todd Cuthbert and Stonigle, but for some reason Buck still trusts him. Uh, it's just that smile. <laughs> he just he just can't can't pull himself away. Right. So we we leave the uproarious um almost religious experience kind of mirroring ray's religious experience he just had buck is having a religious experience of his own we get back to ray's house and what has happened
2: well, uh the place is kind of in shambles like the uh the the garage uh um, it, like stuff is missing from the garage and not just that he runs in and everything of immediate material value w- is just gone. Radios, televisions, VCRs, jewelry, CD players, video games, the silver, the china, like yep. nothing. But the whole no house has been burglarized. Yeah, yeah
1: they just did the, the house has been burglar, burglarized. Yes. And We get one of the most uncomfortable lines from a, I think it's a police officer. I think it's a police officer that says this. Uh, The inner city has moved to the suburbs. We're not safe anymore.
2: Uh, Yeah. Big old yikes.
1: Actually, this whole chapter has a few moments of gross. And I have to say last night I was re-listening to this portion and uh, Alex was sitting there next to me kind of, uh, she's probably on TikTok or something. And, there's conversation happens between Ray and Hattie. We find out that completely unrelated to the plot, Hattie's sister works at an abortion clinic.
0: Oh God. And that's Hattie
1: so is complaining about the lack of business at the abortion clinic.
2: Oh my, yeah, that was the big yikes for me too. Oh! And
1: verbatim, they almost, almost verbatim, it said, your sister wants people to get pregnant so that they can have abortions again.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I wrote and Alex said in unison, fuck gross right for no reason at all other than this is pandering to evangelicals we get just a side thing that abortion clinics are just uh baby murder factories for profit yeah um and that's all they they care about
2: use the word like supply and demand exactly see yeah it's It's awful. It's gross.
1: So all the good feelings I had for nostalgia of my days of being in church and everything completely purged during that exchange. I was like, oh, I forgot. This is awful. So we cut back to Buck, who,
2: um, who's uh, who, and Carpathia's on Nightline um, as they start talking yep. about.
1: And Buck finds out that Scotland Yard is looking for him, Interpol is looking for him, and uh, the NYPD is looking for him, right? <laughs> uh, because he's a suspect in Alan Tompkins' murder,
2: mm-hmm. and uh, he, uh, they start throwing around like, "Oh man, you're acting like you're in a spy movie," because he's like, um, he's all paranoid, it's like, like, don't be using, don't use my. Phone to like, I'm a make this call. Uh, can I like watch on Nightline at your house? And they're even like, sure, but like, I'm a even get to this weird little like subplot where like, well, my husband's watching MASH, so we can tape it tonight. And if you want to come over,
1: yeah, they they go to um Marge's house, who is uh Steve's um uh secretary because they're running from the cops. He and Steve switch credentials. They're basically ducking in and out of cars. There's this little spy scene, and we find out Nikolai is has been named the sexiest man alive.
2: Yeah, and <laughs> People that, Magazine, that comes like, up a lot. come
1: on, guy, come on. So now,
2: now he's he's literally the too sexy uh, Satan statue uh, from. Uh, uh, from art history, where they commissioned a guy to make a statue of Satan, he he was he was too sexy. Then they commissioned his brother to uh, to make another one, and that one was even sexier.
1: <laughs> so yeah, we find out that um, Nikolai's got big plans for the UN. He's going to reform the Security Council. He's going to expand it to ten members a council of 10 Mm -hmm. Um, he calls for complete disarmament except for 10% of the nukes that are all donated to the UN so basically everybody gets rid of their nukes 10% of the nukes are left in the world and those nukes are given to the UN so that the UN can keep every other country in line which literally would never happen ever Mm-hmm. there's no version of geopolitics in which this would happen. But again, this is what Tim LaHaye legitimately thinks the UN's end game
2: is. And then you get into uh, the first actual name drop of someone being like,
0: man, is, is this guy
2: the antichrist from Chloe? Funnily enough. Cause even like, uh, she brings it up and Rayford just like, Hey, uh, like, I thought like, uh, like, which side are you on? Like if you're making this argument.
1: Yeah. Th- and this is going to happen a couple of times in the next couple of chapters. If somebody goes, uh cool one world leader huh maybe it's that carpathia guy and literally everyone in the room including the christians goes nah he's great he's great nah not him nah
2: nah he's just he's just the low-level celebrity yeah
1: nah he's nothing he's nothing um so we find out that hattie uh found out that rayford has been avoiding her um they have a confrontation over the phone um, it's also very awkward. It's about as awkward as uh, oh, Chloe and no. Ray's conversation.
2: Oh, God. Oh, no, not this part.
1: Oh, it's so bad. It is really very awkward, like, will they, won't they dialogue? It,
2: it mirrors the Chloe conversation. He should have learned from the Chloe, like, hey, um, maybe this isn't something that you got to bring up.
1: That We learned that Hattie was totally down uh, for the affair had Rayford actually made a move. Um, And he's kind of kicking himself about it. And she, very like, and she's painted as this sort of like ditzy, over emotional woman, but makes the very real thing of like, dude, you creeped on me for a while, and now you're being weird. Like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Like, I got, I got a life to live. World's falling apart. She hangs up on him. Yeah, and she. She goes off to pursue her own stuff. She's going to try to meet up with Buck and maybe see if she can meet Carpathia because she happens to know a guy who knows a guy. So Hattie's off on her own thing, but we can't get away from the Hattie bashing. We, um, we then get the Buck hallway Kung Fu scene, which I'm going to say uh, to you, Gavin, is not the last time that Buck is going to get in a fisticuff style altercation with someone in this book series. <laughs> um, Buck Williams action reporter uh begins in this section but uh is this is not the last for sure. We reach into chapter 16 and this is where Buck Williams the kung fu reporter uh truly comes into his own in a weirdly low stakes chase uh through a hotel against another journalist to get to Nikolai Carpathia first. Um this guy decides that he's going to pretend to be Buck and try to get in um which is really a dumb plan considering that um
2: that Chaim Rosenzweig knows what Buck looks like he even uh, he even now gets a third disguise right so not only is he uh Buck Williams he's also now uh going undercover as Steve Plank and George Reskovich
1: yeah he's taken Steve Plank's uh credentials so now Steve has run out to the cops to get arrested as Buck um and Buck is Roughing up a dude in the elevator. Yeah, he kind of big dogs this other reporter real quick. Um, grabs him by a shirt collar. Roughs him up a little bit. And then when they get to the top of the elevator, um, they're chasing and Buck is tackling the guy in the hallway. And then finally, Nikolai Saint Nick himself shows up to break up the
0: fight.
2: Um, gentlemen, gentlemen, it's okay. Let me just break up this fight here. Every one of you is wonderful. I can solve everything.
1: Yes, <laughs> It's it's hysterical. Um, So Nikolai gives this other reporter an interview, um, lets him, says, hey, I'll I'll call you tomorrow. And then they make it back in. Nikolai sits down with Buck. Uh, The president of the United States calls Nikolai during their interview, uh, President Gerald Fitzhugh. (laughs) Bad name train keeps rolling, yeah. That uh,
2: and I, because uh, this is because uh, I'm guessing that this is their fictional successor to George Bush, uh, right? For if I'm recalling, like this is like, or was Clinton elected by this book? Clinton? Okay,
1: it would, yeah, it, w- it would have been, yeah, been the, the successor to Clinton or the Clinton analog. Mm-hmm. He says, Boy, that was a heck of a thing, how you took over things there in Romania, <laughs> just like because I mean. It, I would say because that's how a president talks. But, well, (laughs) I mean, nowadays that is how a president talks. Um, Nikolai gets invited to the White House. And it's funny because Nikolai made a point earlier of saying that he specifically wanted to come to the U.N. and not Congress and not the White House, um, which is also this sort of thing where he's taking a dig at American sovereignty. Um, An mm-hmm. American exceptionalism, like we're going to come to the U.S., but I'm going to go to the global body in New York and not to your actual seat of governance. Um, but he he gracefully accepts the invitation, um, and then he and Buck decide to sit down and 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 really masks off. We're going to talk now. He knows Buck is in trouble. He knows why Buck is in trouble, and basically says, "I can make this
2: all go away." Yep he uh, uh, he. And he starts getting into, like, some weird uh, stuff. He's just like, "Um, uh, Buck, let me reiterate that we are talking politics and diplomacy, not skullduggery and crime. So he's denying to a large degree that a lot of this bad stuff's even, like, really happening. While
1: at this same moment literally talking about skullduggery and crime. So it's we've gone from Nikolai being this saintly figure to as soon as the door closes, he still remains charismatic and saintly, but his undertone is... I don't mess around.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm, I, I want to help you. I'm not really part of these guys, but they're dangerous people, and I can make all this go away. Just, I need you to understand your friend Dirk was wrong about a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Let's just let all this unpleasantness go. And he doesn't, other than that, he doesn't really expect much out of Buck and and manages to pull some strings and makes all of Buck's unpleasantness go away. Yep miraculous
2: one might say and then he starts talking about like where um uh how he he believes in the power of money but he's not seduced by it like he starts talking oh yeah about he's a- money philosophy yeah, he's above all of it. He's perfect. Mm-hmm. He's literally Nick like Carpathia, perfect human. He's our. Uh, he's like he. He's the like the the per, the world's perception of Carpathia is like a Mary Sue.
1: Yeah, it really is, and the fact that everyone immediately buys into it, and there's no like Alex Jones voice that is given to this of going, "Hey, <laughs> we got to hear about what this guy did." I, that's actually, you know what? <laughs> See my terrible Alex Jones voice. Well, this guy Carpathia—he um, uh, uh, we we'll trying in- to put chemicals
2: in the water that turn all the crops gay. I <laughs> we'll have the documents right here. He's trying to come after our freedom. <laughs> the, 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 the New World Order, and make everyone use marks and, and and we just got to get away from it and uh, go, 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 d- detach from society. Uh, the globalists are trying to bring uh uh uh. uh <laughs> we got to stop,
1: dude.
0: <laughs> okay, give me pictures into this of Spider Man. Right.
1: This is getting cut out, <laughs> okay. but that's still really funny. All right. So the, you said, yeah, the, the whole world views Nick laker like as like this Mary Sue. And the fact that they all accept it and there isn't an Alex Jones voice is only facilitated by the fact that the closest thing to an Alex Jones has already been suicided. <laughs> Yeah. Um, they got that out of the way, but quick. The only guy who knew about this conspiracy theory has been murdered. And the only person he told was a respectable journalist, not a guy with a podcast. (laughs) Right. So we we move from there into chapter 17. Mm -hmm. Um and Ray and Chloe are having a conversation. And um, you know, Chloe's starting to come around a little bit. She says, Don't worry about me. I'm I'm getting there. She's starting to actually sort of listen to Ray. She wants to watch the tape. Like she's, she's actually starting to turn the corner just a little bit. And then we are introduced to Eli and Moisha.
2: Ooh, yeah. You're two, uh, you're two, uh, big, uh, preachers right now over in Israel. Yep.
1: So we have these two guys that are preaching out in front of the wailing wall in Jerusalem. No one knows who they, where they came from. No one knows who they are, who they work for. They are just sitting in front of the Wailing Wall proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and everyone sees them. It's this huge thing on CNN, which I, I've never been to Jerusalem. Um, I just know the Wailing Wall is as a, as a pretty popular spot you know, for religious reasons and for tourism reasons. I imagine that there's probably people who would be classified as nutzos out there preaching pretty frequently, so I don't think this is actually news. <laughs> Right, I may be
2: completely off base on that, and, it, uh, and our listeners can feel free to correct me. But mm-hmm. and uh, they even they, they they even mention that things are like stirring up, but there's not violence happening yet. Um, they even say that this is um, comparable in, to the the 144,000 Jews who would believe in Christ and begin to evangelize around the world. And they even say like, these guys are like the first two of this this whole flock.
1: Right. The two, the two
2: witnesses. Um, so yep. we've got
1: two elements from revelation and we're about to get a huge, what I call revelation dump.
2: Also and- uh, just a wee, a weird little thing. I like how they segue from that and to like, man, there's this situation in Jerusalem. Also Carpathia, sexiest man alive again, uh, uh, name drop again. Like just the, the progression of the, of the news cycle in uh, this world is, is a little bit humorous.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, everything. It's Carpathia fever. Um, it's like almost everyone's forgotten about the whole disappearance thing, and all anyone wants to talk about is this Carpathia guy,
2: right? Um, oh, but then they they get apart, and I, I I highlighted this, and they they even go in into what's happening in sports very very briefly. Oh yeah, the, and the they, MLB lost dozens of players. Yeah, and they're trying to like, how do we how do we continue this season? Which I really like that, like the, the like there's like sports teams like scrambling like, how do we get new players? Yeah. So we go from here
1: into, and this is something that we won't have time to dissect this week, but it's going to be the Revelation flip charts and the Revelation exposition dump, where Bruce Barnes sits and tells everyone about what they have to look forward to over the next seven years, that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. hmm And that's where I think we can go ahead and leave off for this week. Um, Things are going to get even more spicy as we reach the conclusion of the first left behind novel, the first novel in the series. Um, But how you feeling now, Gav?
2: It's, uh, like, we're really getting to the action. This is where it's highlighting where, like, I hope, because uh, just from a whole series point of view, there's, like, a lot of these. So, like, the action from here, I'm guessing, just keeps getting wilder. And, like, I know I know what happens in the final third of the book, so I'm just really, like, am uh, excited for the climax. But we got a lot of great moments in this middle. Uh, we got some really good highlights of uh, the action and uh, just some uh really nice uh like you know bonding moments within the family uh but then we also got a few moments so it's you know same same old same old just
1: yeah about an equal measure Mm -hmm. um so yeah when we come back next week we'll bring this all to a close and we'll kind of talk about what our overall thoughts were on the first book in the series thanks for joining us on another episode of i survived the rapture i'm shane bazell and i'm gavin russell And as always, don't fake your death after a car bomb. And
2: if you do, have
1: five disguises. Bye, everybody. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, You can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com and we really want to hear from you.